Lord, I thank you for the profound truths that we've looked at today. I pray that you'll open our eyes to behold wondrous things from your word. In Jesus' name, amen. Well, there were three sons of a Yiddish mother who left their homeland and went abroad and prospered a great deal. So they discussed gifts that they were going to send and do for their elderly mother. Abraham, the first, said, well, I built a big house for mother. Moshe, the second, said, well, I sent her a Mercedes with a driver. (laughs) And David, the youngest, said, well, you remember how our mother enjoys reading the Torah, and now she can't see very well, so I've sent her a remarkable parrot that recites the whole Torah. (laughs) Took the rabbi's year, 12 years, to teach him to do this. And he recites it at command. Mama is just going to love this. So, soon thereafter, uh, a letter of thanks came from Mama to each of her sons. Abraham, the house you built is so huge. I live only in one room, but I have to clean the whole house. (laughs) Moshi, I'm too old to travel. I stay most of the time at home, so rarely do I use the Mercedes and the drivers, a pain in the tuchus. (laughs) And David, the chicken was delicious. All right, nothing to do with anything, but it's nice to laugh at times, right? As we begin our study of this wonderful gospel, we approach each passage with our finite minds, trying to grasp truths that sometimes are very far beyond our ability. Our study today begins with portraying the life of Jesus from eternity past and that he existed before the world ever was created. His life was rich His life was glorious, it was filled with joy, it was filled with delight in the presence of the Father. It would have been that way and it would have been great to stay that way. But it's only when we recognize that this truth is reality that we better appreciate his amazing, condescending love to come and be a man. Our minds are limited in trying to fathom the infinite God of the universe, the creator of all things, became a human flesh. The purpose of this gospel account written by John is that readers would believe who Jesus is and by embracing him, they would have life in his name. He wants to convince his readers the true, of the true identity of Jesus Christ, the incarnate God-man, the Messiah, the Savior of the world. Every false religion and every cult fails to recognize the full deity of Jesus as the God-man. They may proclaim him to be a prophet who... Uh, or created savior for mankind, but such errors deny the truth of who Jesus is and why his sacrifice could only be effective because he is eternal God-man. I hope your study today equips you better to dialogue with some of these people who you may meet at your door. Um, I got help from William Hendrickson, John MacArthur, James Montgomery Boyce, and Wearsby in my preparations. So we begin with Jesus Christ is God, verses 1 and 2, and we see the pre-existence of the Word. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He was in the beginning with God. In the beginning takes us back to Genesis 1-1, when the heavens and the earth were created. The Word existed from all of eternity. In the beginning was the word. So Jesus was already in existence when the heavens and earth were created. Therefore, he is not a created being himself. Wherever you place the beginning in your mind, the word was there before time. There was never a point when he came into being. 
The word logos was used frequently in Greek uh, philosophy, but used in error. The same uh, word is seen in the Old Testament where the word of God is represented as a person. By the word of Jehovah were the heavens made, Psalm 33. Proverbs 8.27 talks about the word creating the earth. In the New Testament, Christ is presented as the word of God as he expresses and reflects the mind of God and he reveals God to man. And the word was with God. The thought here is that the word was face to face with God, having the closest possible fellowship and delight with the Father. And as we think about this, we have to be in awe of such incomprehensible love that would cause Jesus to humbly condescend to be a man. And the word was God. This is the clearest declaration of the truth of the deity of Jesus Christ. False teachers change this truth by saying the word was divine, or worse yet, they claim the word is a God. But the Greek construction of the statement shows that God describes the nature of the word, showing that he is the same essence as the Father. In verse 2, he himself was in the beginning face to face with God. We see that the word is distinct in personal existence, eternal, and therefore he is full deity. The power of the word to create is seen in verse 3. All things came into being through him, and apart from him, nothing came into being that has come into being. So every detail of the universe, every molecule, every cell structure, everything came to exist one by one through his divine word. In the past, the word created all things, and in the present, there isn't anything that exists apart from him right now. The fact that the word Jesus Christ created everything, again, proves he is deity. God is referred to in the Bible as the creator of all things, and Jesus brought into being everything that he exists because he created the universe. So in these first three verses, we see that Jesus is God. And we see in verses four and five, he is the self-existent one. In him was life. The life was the light of men. The light shined into the darkness and the darkness did not comprehend it. Notice life is in him, which means from eternity past and throughout all of time, life resides in the word. We are taught here that Jesus is the embodiment of life, the eternal light who came into a sin-darkened world of men. In this gospel, John is frequently going to use the words light and life, referring to spiritual life, not physical and this shows us that he is the self-existent one. He is unchanging and therefore distinct from people and all created things that are yet coming into existence. The source of all life comes from the self-existent Godhead, the eternal, pure, perfect one who never becomes anything. The life cannot be separated from the light. His life is truth and holiness and that life is the light of the world. Verse 5, the light shines into the darkness, but the darkness doesn't comprehend it. The thought is that the light is not overcome by the darkness and its evil forces. Just like you can light a tiny candle in a very dark room and it will bring light. So the brilliant light of Jesus will shine and ultimately destroy the realm of Satan and all of his darkness. The forces of darkness know who the light is. They know their judgment is secure. and I mean, is sure. As a result, they try to kill life and put out the light. And that's the reason for endless persecution. 
This darkness is synonymous with the world seen in verse 10 that is antagonistic of the light. It does not accept the light. It doesn't appropriate the light into its life. In fact, it hates the light. Is my earring making clicking noises? I think so. Sorry about that. <laughs> Response to the incarnate word is seen in verses 6 through 13. And here we have the testimony of John the Baptist. There came a man sent from God whose name was John. He came as a witness to testify about the light so that all might believe through, might believe through him. He was not the light, but he came to testify about the light. So in contrast to the beginning where we see the eternal creator God in the first five verses, now we read about a mere man sent from God. John was just making it very clear that uh, he is not the word. The word of God sent him, and he is his spokesman, who is the herald to announce about the word of God. John the Baptist was commissioned by God and was sent by God to fulfill the Old Testament prophecies that spoke about a forerunner to the Messiah coming. He was very similar to the prophet Elijah. And this was explained to Zacharias, remember his dad, as he was doing his priestly service in the temple, and the angel came and said, in your old age, you're going to have a son, and you're going to name him John. His purpose for coming was to testify concerning the light, so that everyone through him might come to believe. In other words, all of those who heard the testimony of John the Baptist had the opportunity then to embrace Jesus by faith, as John was really a reflector of the light found in Christ. John was like a prophet to appear in Israel. It had been 400 years of silence in the nation of Israel. He was bold. He was confrontative. And people came out by droves to hear him. He was to prepare the hearts of the people for the Messiah. And fearlessly he confronted sin and called people to repent. And repent means you have a change of mind and change of heart. You're going this way. You see it's wrong. You do a turn and repent. Jesus said that John the Baptist was the greatest man who had ever lived up to that point. He was the forerunner to the Messiah, the instrument to announce publicly that Jesus was the Savior. Verse 8 makes it clear John was not the light. He came to testify about the light. Jesus is the light, and John only reflected that light in trying to point people to the light. But the rejection of the light is seen in verses 9 through 11. There was the true light, which coming into the world enlightens every man. He was in the world, and the world was made through him, and the world did not know him. He came to his own, and those who were his own did not receive him. Such very sad verses. The real, ideal, genuine, perfect light that makes all others seem dim, seem dim is Jesus. He came into the world as he alone is able to enlighten darkness and give spiritual illumination. He illumines every man who hears the gospel as he gives a degree of understanding about spiritual matters. The majority do not respond favorably. They may be aware of the light. They may be okay with the light um, for holidays, but they prefer the darkness. But there are some who by God's grace receive the word and have eternal life. In verse 10, we see that sad response of the world to Jesus. The created world of people did not acknowledge him. The world came into being through Jesus, therefore they should have acknowledged the light when he came amongst them. Specifically here, the world to which Christ came is represented by the nation of Israel, like a small circle in a much bigger circle. He came to his own home, and his own people did not welcome him. They disowned him, rejected him, and did not welcome him. There was an exception, though, as seen in the next verses. There's a testimony of those who believe, but... 
as many as received him. To them, he gave the right to become children of God, even to those who believe in his name. So with this simple first word, but, uh, we see a dramatic contrast to the world and its rejection of God. Nothing can overrule God's plan. There will be some who receive him. As Jesus said in John 6, 37, all that the father gives me will come to me. And the one who comes to me, I will never cast out. The word received could be translated to take hold of, to obtain, to grasp. Clearly then, this means more than just an intellectual acceptance of facts about Jesus. Yes, I believe he came, he was God, he lived a good life, he died, he rose again. A lot of people have that intellectual acceptance and say, yes, I believe that. However, accepting him is not just an intellectual understanding of facts. It's welcoming him in, into your life, giving control of him to, to your life to him, appropriating the light. As many as embrace him by a living faith in his name, to them he gave the gift of God's sovereign grace, giving them the right to become his own child. Therefore, these individuals were born again, not of blood, nor the will of the flesh, nor the will of man, but of God. Salvation cannot be obtained because of any ethnic heritage or background or relatives who are in a religious uh, leadership, nor any personal desire of the flesh or any man-made system of belief. The being born spiritually is all of God. It is he who makes it possible for a sinner to have their spiritually dead hearts brought to life with the gift of faith. And the glory is displayed by the word made flesh. In verse 14, and the word became flesh and dwelt among us. And we saw his glory, glory as of the only begotten father, full of grace and truth. John testified about him and cried out saying, this was he of whom I said, he who comes after me has a higher rank than I, for he existed before me. For of the fullness we have all received his fullness and grace upon grace. For the law was given through Moses, grace and truth were realized through Jesus Christ. No one has seen God at any time. The only begotten God who is in the bosom of the Father, he has explained him. Most of us love to celebrate Christmas. You know, it'll be here like next week, right? I mean, that's... Um, and that's what Christmas is about, celebrating the word became flesh. And it clearly states he took on humanity. The eternal God entered time. The invisible God became visible. The infinite became finite. The creator entered his creation. And God revealed himself to man as uh, he had been seen in the Old Testament and many appearances. But he is supremely revealed with clarity when the word became flesh and dwelt among us. The word, he became flesh. He never stopped being the eternal word of, of God, even when he was a man. He remained fully God, yet became fully man. And who can wrap their head around that? He entered time and space and went through the experiences of life that we go through. And he knows what it's like. He knows the pain and heartache that comes with living on this planet. In 1 Timothy 3.6, talks about the fact that he is the God-man, 316. For 33 years, he dwelt among men, and he was 33 plus years, uh, he became in the likeness of man. He dwelt, and that literally means he lived in a tent, to live in a tent. As Hebrews reminds us, he had to be like his brethren in all things so that he might become a merciful, faithful high priest in things pertaining to God to make propitiation, that is, satisfaction for the sins of the people. 
Hebrews 2.17. So the word pitched his tent. Maybe that rings a bell with you if you studied the Old Testament. During the Exodus, as the people wandered in the wilderness, you know, they had the the design of the tabernacle that God gave very specifically with all the specific furniture, and it was a portable tent Tent they took with them. <clears throat> the tabernacle was at the center of the camp, and everything about it was designed to communicate uh, spiritual truth to everyone. The tabernacle was the dwelling place of God and the place he dwelt among his people. Here in John, we read Jesus is the one who pitched his tent among us. Eyewitnesses beheld his glory, even though it was veiled by his humanity. Peter, James, and John got that brief glimpse of Jesus' heavenly glory at the transfiguration. All the disciples saw his deity and his attributes on display when they saw his miracles and when they listened to his words. The glory of Jesus is clearly seen in his attributes related to salvation where we read grace and truth. The only way anyone will ever be delivered from the penalty and paying for the penalty of your own sin is if there is belief in the truth of the gospel message and accepting that his sacrifice on the cross was for you. The author of John will include witnesses now to the truth about Jesus, so he calls on John the Baptist as the main one here who testified about Jesus. This witness is mentioned 89 times in the New Testament. John the Baptist proclaimed that Jesus is eternal, even though John was born six months before Jesus. Jesus created John and existed before he was ever conceived. For of his fullness we have all received, and grace upon grace. Here is a precious truth, ladies, that we need to think about and be reminded of often. Those who believe in him and have experienced the amazing fruit of his fullness and have received grace upon grace from an infinite God. Grace is on God's undeserved favor. In Christ, all the fullness of deity dwells in bodily form. He then provides for all of his own children, all of their needs, and that supply can never be exhausted. It is grace upon grace, never ending, never has a limit. You can't have grace for tomorrow's events. Today, we all know that, right? <laughs> but there is always grace upon grace with no limits. Unmerited favor fills our life and it begins at the moment of our salvation. That is just the start of his amazing grace in our lives. The supply of grace never ends. We must remember that Jesus Christ is the source of all material and spiritual blessings, even when we fail to acknowledge his goodness or to even thank him for it. So when you are at the end of your endurance, when you are at the end of your rope, when your trial seems to go on and on and on and on, remember there is a never-ending source of grace upon grace for each and every moment of our life. And that includes strength from him, him empowering us to overcome sin and meeting our needs. I'm reminded of an old song titled, He Giveth More. He giveth more grace when the burdens grow greater. He sendeth more strength when the labors increase. To added affliction, he adds his mercy. To multiplied trials, his multiplied peace. His love has no limit. His grace has no measure. His power has no boundary known unto men. For out of his infinite riches in Jesus, he giveth and giveth and giveth again. Great truth. And it's true for everyone who is his child. The question then must be asked, have you ever experienced his unmerited grace in the gift of salvation? 
No one can earn God's favor or impress him by being a part or member of a church or doing good things that are admirable. And truly, when we compare ourselves to other people, there's always other people who can make you look good, right? <laughs> so that's not the standard. It's God who's perfect and holy and righteous. And we have offended him with our self-centeredness, with our rotten attitudes, our ugliness. And we are guilty and separated from God because of our sin. This is why the word became flesh. So he could come and die and bear the wrath of God that we deserve as he hung on the cross for sinners like us. For all who come to him in a, with a humble heart, recognizing you are spiritually bankrupt, you have nothing to offer God to impress him. That's why he came, because you couldn't do anything. And you come to him with a humble heart seeking forgiveness. It is his grace that is his unmerited favor that makes possible the gift of salvation. For by grace are you saved through faith, and that not of yourselves, it is the gift of God, not as a result of works, so that nobody can boast. I pray if anyone here has never really understood their spiritually needy condition before, you've been content with your own intellectual acceptance of the truths about the Bible or Jesus before, that today you will see that he is offering you Forgiveness, past, present, future sins. And then he lavishes you with grace upon grace. It begins the moment you trust him to be your Lord and Savior and, and turn from your sin and give your life to him. And he continues to lavish his grace on us. And for all who know him, how often we fail to live in the light of this reality as if we're just some bankrupt have nothing. We have reason to obey 1 Thessalonians 5, rejoice always because of, <clears throat> because of who he is and all he has done to make us his own. In verses 17 and 18, we see that the law was given through Moses as he had the privilege of speaking with God face to face. And yet Moses did not see God or know him in all of his fullness. God is spirit, and therefore he cannot be seen. Notice the only begotten God here refers to the Trinity. God the Father and God the Son, who is in the bosom of the Father, has made God known. God has been revealed to us because Jesus explains him to us. We know what God is like through the life and ministry of Jesus. That's why it's great we're studying the Gospel of John, because we're going to look at his life, and we are to emulate his life. If we're his children, we're supposed to act like our Father. The testimony then of John the Baptist, Jewish leaders questioned in verse uh, 19. So this whole delegation gets sent from Jerusalem, go out in the desert and find out who this crazy guy is. And, and they say, who are you? Are you Elijah? And John answers these questions by assuring them, I'm not the Messiah. I'm not Elijah. Remember the prophet Elijah? He didn't even have to die. He just went up in a whirlwind to heaven and so people were saying, maybe he's come back. You know, he never did die. Maybe he just came on back. But John was similar to Elijah in the sense that he had incredible power and boldness. But he says, I'm not Elijah. And at this point, these very frustrated questioners, this delegation, ask, well, who are you? So that we may give an answer to those who sent us. What do you say about yourself? Well, rather than making some claim to fame, John the Baptist humbly refers himself as just a voice of one crying in the wilderness. His message is a fulfillment of Isaiah 40, verse 3, and that was that he had come to make straight the way of the Lord. The hearts of people are like a wilderness or a desert, and he was simply preparing the road in advance of the king. 
Here was an opportunity for every member of this delegation, as well as all those they were going to go and report back to, to make the road straight so that the Lord could enter. In other words, make straight the Lord's highway that leads straight to your heart. This would mean genuine sorrow for sin, praying for mercy and God's forgiveness. John was just a voice. They needed to realize their need to repent as commanded by the one who the voice represented. So the delegation of men had been sent by the Pharisees, and now they question John as to who gave you the authority to baptize people. And John states, he baptizes just with water, but then puts the focus back on the one to whom he bears witness. But the one who comes after me is the Messiah. But they refuse to acknowledge him. Jim sa- uh, Jim. John says he is not worthy to even untie the sandal of Jesus. That was the lowliest task of a slave. The message of John the Baptist is clear. You must prepare your hearts because the Messiah is here. A 600-year-old prophecy was being fulfilled in the ministry of John the Baptist. So John then declares Jesus to be the Lamb of God. Behold, the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world when he sees him. This is a title used for Jesus only here in John's writings. The idea of a sacrificial lamb was familiar to all Jewish people. There could be no forgiveness of sin apart from an acceptable substitute, the innocent dying for the guilty. God had provided a substitute way back when he started the Jewish nation with Abraham and his son when he went to offer him. The Passover lamb was to be remembered by the nation of Israel every year that God delivered them out of Egypt. Isaiah 53 speaks of the Messiah as a lamb led to the slaughter. The Messiah was imagined by the Jewish people to only think about him as the king and the conqueror. But God had first sent them a lamb. And this lamb of God would uh, would himself be the ultimate sacrifice when he died on the cross for the sins of the world. His sacrificial death would not just be for the Jewish people, but for everyone on the planet. This verse is not saying everybody on the planet is going to be saved, rather that his death is sufficient for the sins of everyone, everywhere, who would ever believe in him. Again and again, John makes it abundantly clear that he is subordinate to Jesus, who came after him as a higher rank, who existed before him. John goes on to testify that he saw the Spirit descend on Jesus out of heaven as a dove and remain on him when he baptized him. John the Baptist boldly proclaims, I have seen and have testified that this is the Son of God. John heard the voice. John saw the evidence. Jesus is the Messiah. And he passes his truth on to every one of us who reads this book. He passes his truth to us to respond to. The important matter here is that the Messiah has come and we must recognize him for who he is, the Son of God, the Lamb of God, who was sacrificed for the sins of the world. May his condescending love for you and his never-ending lavish supply of his unmerited favor and strength and his grace bring you joy and cause your heart to respond with wanting to be obedient to him and do his will. Let's pray. Father, I thank you for the truth of who you are. I thank you for the ministry of John the Baptist who points us and teaches us that you are God. And Lord, how can we thank you enough for leaving the glories of heaven, leaving perfection, leaving perfect unity to come here and live amongst people like us and suffer and no pain and rejection and heartache and disappointment, and grief, and abandonment, and all that you suffered in order to make possible 
our being forgiven of our sins. Lord, thank you for taking the wrath of our sins on yourself when you hung on the cross. And I pray for each one here, Lord, that you would work in our hearts to be responsive to this incredible love by loving you in return and living a life that is a thank you every day by being obedient to the word. In Jesus' name, amen.